The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You may be a writer then, but uh, you have courage I did not expect. Who are you? This uh, enterprise is masterminded by a secret aristocratic society which has been... Uh, Guiding the fate of Europe for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. We have adherents in the highest councils of every land. Today, our mission is to save Europe. From what? Democracy. It is eroding the foundations of virtue. The wise and the good should rule, not those who know how to stir up the masses. Who decides who's wise and who's good? Morning, London. It is Thursday, August 11, 2011. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Robert Vaughn is expected to return on our next show, but is it inevitable? That's one of the subjects we'll be looking at at today. So once again today, I'll be charting our weekly journey in the right direction on my own this week. And of course, as always, the number to call is 519-661-3600 if you want to reach us on the open line or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. You can also visit our site at www.justrightmedia.org to get all of our past broadcasts available both in MP3 and in WMAs. So today on the show, I would guess our major theme will be, later on after our first quarter, uh, free will versus determinism. And it's all about predicting the future. This is an incredibly important issue. You might think it's a very esoteric philosophical issue. It can be that as well. But it strikes at the heart of just about everything we think, we believe, we understand about ourselves and the society in which we live. But first I want to start with a response to... Mr. John Moore, who has written an interesting editorial that really requires a response. You know, everybody's in favor of democracy until the other side keeps winning elections. That's when the very notion of democracy leaves a bad taste in the mouth of those who keep losing the democratic battle. And why democracy is a great thing when your side is winning. Lately, the public's mood has been swinging to the so-called right, and that's a sure thing to incite anyone on the left. A country held hostage to right-wing purists, writes John Moore, host of AM 1010's More in the Morning. And this was in the National Post, August 3rd, 2011. And he writes, six years ago, I was shopping a book idea to publishers. My central thesis was that a portion of the American conservative movement has quite simply gone nuts. Flash forward six years and crazy still hasn't found a floor as their radical postures in the debt ceiling fight shows, which we were talking about last week, right-wing nutters have taken reason hostage and the American government along with it. What's interesting is, uh, I I, I do know that I read this whole article, and I'll read a a chunk of it to you, but I was really wondering which part of the right-wing Moore might have thought was not nuts, because he doesn't say, and he hasn't really expressed any standard of value against 
which to pronounce this condemnation, and that's one of the things that bothers me. And he, say, he writes, this is not to tar the entire Tea Party. Well, yes, it is. Because the movement actually includes a significant cohort that can grasp simple concepts like the fact that you cannot be a libertarian and tell everyone else how to live. <laughs> now, that's a cheap shot. You know, it's true. But it's unreal, as in it doesn't really apply to what libertarians even generally say. Libertarians don't tell everybody else how to live. Libertarians simply don't want other people, like liberals, socialists, and conservatives, telling them how to live. You know, I have my criticisms of libertarians, but that's the wrong one. And he writes, but as the expression goes, not all Tea Partiers are crazy, but all the crazies seem to be in the Tea Party. And again, I'm wondering which ones aren't crazy, according to him. Then he continues, this largely Christianist movement Christianist, hmm, has extended its biblical literalism to the American Constitution. Now, I don't know what movement he's calling largely Christianist. The Tea Party movement or just the crazies within the Tea Party? To what literalism is he actually referring? When not reading aloud from centuries-old documents, he writes, like the Bible and the American Constitution, because they're old, they must be wrong, I guess, the partiers are incanting passages from, and here he gets into trouble, from Ayn Rand's blunderbuss greeds. They love Rand's uncompromising vision of the supremacy of the individual and the tyranny of government. Now, I'm wondering who he's talking about now, because Christianists who are fans of Ayn Rand, does that make sense, or vice versa? When they're not reading the Bible, they're, not, they're reading Rand? <laughs> Does he not realize how utterly incompatible one of these things is with the other? Then he writes, they gloss over the fact that the only individuals Rand respected were Nietzschean Ubermen. Well, that one was the one that hit below the belt and got me going, because that's an outright falsehood. It's just so untrue, it's unbelievable. Rand respected any individual who used his or her mind at any level of work and wrote about this at length, even in her novels. As to Nietzsche, she rejected his philosophy entirely and explicitly, and I will quote for you, quote, Philosophically, Nietzsche is a mystic and an irrationalist. Nietzsche's rebellion against altruism consisted of replacing the sacrifice of oneself to others by the sacrifice of others to oneself. He proclaimed that reason, logic, principles are futile and debilitating, that morality is useless, that the quote-unquote superman is quote-unquote beyond good and evil, that he is a quote beast of prey whose ultimate standard is nothing but his own whim. Does this sound like someone who, in Moore's words, only respects Nietzschean ubermen? It's ridiculous. Then he writes, she referred to people who actually work for a living as quote-unquote savages. This is stunning. Find me a single sentence that says or implies this. I mean, written by Rand, that is, of course. This is so disgustingly false an, ass an assertion, I can't even fathom where Moore would ever have dredged up such an outrageously nutbar suggestion. Like her mentor, Isabel Patterson, Rand was constantly speaking up for the average worker, having written extensive essays lamenting their plight at the hands of people who think like John Moore and always warning that all of the social benefits promised by politicians and governments come directly out of the working man's wages, and for that reason alone should be rejected. Collectivism is what destroys the middle class, they constantly warn. Then he writes, this is John Moore, and she, meaning Ayn Rand, held religion in greater contempt than even Karl Marx did, end quote. Well, here's what Rand actually said about religion, quote, 
You must remember that religion is an early form of philosophy, that the first attempts to explain the universe, to give a coherent frame of reference to man's life and a code of moral values, were made by religion, before men graduated or developed enough to have philosophy. And as philosophies, some religions have very valuable moral points. Boy, that sounds like a nut bar against religion, right? My own sense of how Rand felt about religion was that she was generally indifferent to religion as such. Rand never made a crusade about her atheism. When people asked her whether she believed in a deity, she would like basically just say no. But that alone was seen by, by so many people as you know a hard-line stand, or as Moore phrased it, quote, a greater contempt for religion. But she attacked her rationality and evil wherever she found it, and both the religious and atheists were fully capable of both in all their forms. Religion is really a non-issue to Rand. Irrationality was the thing to which she objected, and if a religious point of view was more rational than a secular one, she certainly wouldn't have picked the secular one just to be on the side of religion. That's, that's total nonsense, misinformation, myth, untruth. And then he writes, now, now he gets away from Rand and gets back to the, the, the now, now he calls it the new right. On economics, the new right descends further into monomania, convinced, convinced that the answer to every question is lower taxes. Now, that's not what's going on. No, the, on the issue of taxes, the answer is lower. On the issue of abortion, the new right does not advocate lower taxes. On the issue of free speech, the new right does not advocate lower taxes. On the issue of gun control, the new right does not advocate lower taxes, and so on and so on. But on the issue of taxes, when taxes and government spending are clearly out of control and overbearing, the right answer is lower. Come on. Then he writes, and this is John Moore again, the editors I met with six years ago maintained that this would all blow over. I think they gravely underestimated the Internet's power to not only disseminate false information, but also feed the overarching anti-government paranoia required to make it all seem coherent. The Internet is a permanent challenge to expertise and authority, he writes. Well, speaking of false information, I guess sort of like the information Mr. Moore just spread about Ayn Rand and the way, you know, by the way of his commentary. And the last commentary on the Internet is, is the ultimate in BS. If Moore had proved anything, it is that a reputable newspaper like the National Post also has the power to disseminate false information, like when it publishes Moore's commentary. Throughout his entire commentary, Moore does not once, not once, I repeat, hint at any positive value that he might support, nor give us an example of someone, you know, on what he sees as a right who's not paranoid or crazy. Now think about it. Here's his summary of his points. One, the conservative movement has gone nuts. Two, the conservative movement is still nuts, but now the American government is nuts too. Three, libertarians are nuts just because. Four, Ayn Rand published blunderous screeds against the working savages who must support the Nietzschean Uppermen. Five, that St. Ronald Reagan actually raised taxes. Six, that Glenn Beck and Grover Norquist maintain provably false facts and arguments. Seven, that the Internet is full of BS and anti-government paranoia. Well, I think somebody's paranoid, all right, about the right. And when you're in a state of paranoia, I suppose you get a little bit nuts yourself and start making up stuff as you go along, or something like that, eh? Pot, meat kettle... As a, you know, I'm a harsh critic of the right wing myself, and it seems important to me that before I make a public criticism, 
of a right-wing policy or personality that I take the time to actually see what they really have said or done that would justify my criticism. Now, I can't speak to every point he made, but John Moore has clearly never read anything or at least understood anything written by Ayn Rand. It took me all of five seconds to check my Ayn Rand lexicon on the very subjects and issues that Moore raised to discover that in each case, Rand stood on the opposite side of the issue that Moore placed her on. Now, is, is that responsible journalism or responsible commentary? What's Moore's agenda? Fearing the Internet's, quote, permanent challenge to expertise and authority, end quote, seems to me that Moore is a, a fan of the welfare state, with, which operates on the principles of someone else's expertise being used as the justification, you know, to mess with our personal lives via some arbitrary authority that introduces coercion and force into every aspect of our social fabric. Now, he's a statist, and that's very clear, which explains his contempt for individual and for individual rights. And when he attacks the right-wing purists, as he likes to call them, what he's really defending is a compromise with something that those right-wing purists would regard as evil. And you don't compromise. The compromise, that doesn't have to occur at the point of debate. The compromise occurs in the process of democracy. And no one needs to compromise their point of view to get a compromise out of a democratic vote because everybody supports what they support and how the vote ends up, that's the, that's the way the government will go. Which I suppose uh, brings up an interesting question. Is democracy inevitable? Should we even ever worry about who controls our governments and how? Well, between now and the end of today's show, I shall attempt to demonstrate to one and all that nothing can be inevitable, not even death itself. Now, I didn't say you wouldn't die. I'm just saying that it's not inevitable. And there's a very deep meaning to that. And I'm not just playing with words to mess up your mind or anything like that. I'm, I'm actually defining these words so that hopefully our minds will function a little more properly in dealing with the greatest philosophical question facing mankind. Does free will really exist? Or are we mere cogs in a determinist world of inevitability? That's the issue we'll be tackling for the balance of today's show when we continue right after this. So, Monsieur Jules Verne... <laughs> You thought you could outwit us, huh? On the contrary, we used your own tools against you. Now, do you realize what a foolish choice you made when you rejected my offer? Maybe a foolish choice, but it was the right one. You stand for the past. I believe in the future. I believe in science. Mm, but so do we. Science simply makes it easier to keep the little people in their place. Democracy will triumph. I assure you of that. You are in no position to assure me of anything. mind if you think about it. What does? That ship could be from the 31st century. When I was young, I always wanted to build a time machine. See the future. You're probably the kind of person that jumps to the end of the book before you read it. Well, don't tell me you never wondered what it'd be like. How our mission will turn out. Well, wondering about the future and knowing it are two different things. If Daniels came here and offered you a chance to go to the 31st century, you wouldn't take it. Some things are better left a mystery. And you've called yourself an explorer. Where's the fun in exploring if you know how it all turns out? Hand me that micro caliper. 
suppose you could look into some future book. Find out the name of the woman you're going to marry. Do you want to know it? Absolutely. Think of all the awkward first dates I could avoid. <laughs> Fine. So, one day you meet Jane Doe. You go out a few times, and you pop the question. She says, I do, and the two of you live happily ever after. Sounds perfect. Now, did you marry her for love? Because some book told you to. If we're happily ever after, what difference does it make? <laughs> and that was Tripp. You should have seen the look of disgust on his face when he got that response to his question. Because, of course, it struck at the heart of a very important question. Free will, a window into own values, reads the July 30th headline in the London Free Press. Goldwyn Emerson's commentary appearing in the spirituality and ethics section of the paper found me actually agreeing with his conclusion. But I found his proof of free will. His argument is, it was a little bit putting the cart before the horse, if you know what I mean, if that reference is even appropriate. And he writes, quote, To be involved in ethics, you must first believe that you have the ability to choose. Having the power to choose is also known as free will as opposed to determinism. The hardcore determinist believes that past experience, genetic makeup, natural intelligence, culture, and parental guidance work so strongly to influence our quote-unquote choices that we don't really have the free will that most people think we have. For the determinist, even the choices one makes are determined by factors that are already set in place. Believers in free will, on the other hand, recognize that many factors influence their choices and factors such as previous experience, parental guidance, culture, etc., can enhance our free will. These factors are useful in making the best choices and giving us more freedom than if we make random choices not influenced by prior conditions. Most, but not all, religious thinkers, philosophers, and others who think about ethics believe we have free will. Although this age-old debate about free will and determinism has gone on for a long time, and it is likely to remain unsettled. The reason the question of free will, or not free will, is important to ethics is that without at least some degree of free will, we cannot make ethical decisions. And that's the basis of his argument, and I kind of agree with the conclusion of that. And while I do agree with the writer that free will is necessary to ethics and choice, I really disagree with his belief that in free will that, that it requires faith and cannot be understood on the basis of knowledge and on reason. And here's why, and I, and I know this is going to get really heavily philosophical, but I think I've tried to make it as simple as I can. You know, faith and reason are both epistemological concepts. Epistemology being that science of knowledge and how we can know that what we know is real and what actually exists. It's like rules to knowledge, rules to what you know. Now, by definition and by practice, there's no debate on this, faith intrinsically accepts a conclusion without evidence or proof or even contrary to evidence or proof, while reason is bound by reality to arrive at its conclusions based on what we know, and we call that knowledge combined with our capacity to reason and to use logic according to well-established principles, whether scientific, mathematical, or most importantly, philosophical. 
you know, scientists and logical Mr. Spock types, um, they tend to be determinists. I have to put up with a lot of these people, and it can be very stressing from time to time. To them, everything is deterministic because they are, by their professions, grounded in the field of metaphysics, right? They're dealing with reality. And in that field, everything is deterministic. So that's why these types basically reject the concept of free will on metaphysical grounds. Then on the other hand, you've got the religious and philosophical types who tend to believe in free will. Now, I would put myself in almost both camps in a way, but I'll have to explain that later. To them, to the religious and philosophical types, everything is a moral issue. It's about making choices. And of course, without something that we call free will, let's face it, all moral arguments are a sham. This is why I think this is a little bit putting the cart before the horse, because you're saying, well, we are making moral choices, and morality exists, so we must have free will. I think it has to, you have to prove the other way around, that first you've got free will, then you can make moral choices. But hopefully I can make that case before the end of the show. But the religious and philosophic type of folks generally tend to reject um, the concept of determinism on the basis of their epistemological understanding or belief. Now, Central to their disagreement is something we call the law of causality. We are all aware of that. Every action is caused by a preceding action. Causality, say the scientific types, means that all actions are determined by preceding conditions and events. Causality, say the scientific types, means that free will does not exist in reality, and therefore it's just an illusion to our perceptions. But causality, say the religious and philosophic types, is the very thing that validates free will, since to make choices to, is to understand the potential different consequences that each choice might have, consequences that result due to the law of causality itself. Thus, making choices is partly about pre predicting consequences before they happen, the future, time, and predictability. And this is where an already irreconcilable debate gets even worse. You know, I've watched the most brilliant of minds get caught in this very basic trap. The consequences, because there are consequences due to the law of causality, of holding to one point of view or the other while rejecting the other side's argument will lead one to draw false and misleading conclusions about a host of possible issues of knowledge, whether scientific or personal. And to be out of sync with reality always invites dire consequences and irresolvable dilemmas. Now, this is, the, this is what people forget, and Ayn Rand, I remember, always tried to remind us of this. In causality, actions do not occur by themselves. You know, everybody says, well, one action causes another, this causes that. But it's not an action. It's all, all actions refer to entities. You have to have an entity. All actions refer to the movement of something. Something has to move before you have an action. Without an object that acts, action is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. And yet this is how most of the debate surrounding the whole controversy is generally conducted. And people ignore the nature of the actor, if you know what I mean, even if it's an inanimate object. For example, um, a billiard ball striking another billiard ball. A billiard ball striking my head. <laughs> Both initial actions, being a moving billiard ball, are the same. 
Yet the consequence of each would be very different due to the nature of the object acted upon. And in fact, if you think, you know, the experts will tell you, they'll even tell you, even two billiard balls are not exactly the same. If you looked at them microscopically, etc., etc. And all entities have properties. Properties define the nature of those entities. But these properties have to be discovered and understood by man. And that's where knowledge always comes in, the science of knowledge and understanding. Now, you may recall uh, a while ago, I don't know how many months ago it was, <clears throat> we had what I call an artificial debate, the debate over artificial intelligence, which we discussed in great detail. And, you know, was artificial intelligence real? And, uh, you know, I don't think so. I, my, my position was it's not. Artificial intelligence is just a logic machine running amok. And the people who argue that artificial intelligence is real in the sense of free will, like human beings have, I think is really an argument about trying to improve that human intelligence doesn't exist due to the deterministic laws of physics and of nature. And, you know, that argument's exactly the same as the free will versus determinism argument. Both of the debates, I think, are a little unreal as they rest on a confusion of grounds or of relevant contexts. Is it metaphysical or is it epistemological? Now, metaphysically, everything is deterministic. This is the law of causality, and it's based on the motion of objects acted upon by external forces. But a living entity is not just an object, it is a subject, capable of its own motion and direction of that motion. If you hit a cat with a billiard cue stick in the same way you'd strike a billiard ball, Will the cat just obey the laws of physics and do what the billiard ball does? I'll tell you, if it's a Siamese cat, watch out. It doesn't crawl right up the cue stick and take a bite out of your hand. It might move in the exact opposite direction that your stick shoved it. Now, determinists, of course, of course, they would argue that the animal choosing to run, jump, turn left or right is merely the result of the same deterministic phenomenon. The fox chasing the hen didn't really choose to do so. It was inevitable. Not just determined, mind you, but almost predetermined by physical forces. It's just that we don't know all the factors in place that make it finally happen. You know, all these objects in motion. In this case, the object being the processes, let's say, in the fox's brain. And it seems, you know, when it comes down to it, to the determinist, it doesn't matter what the action taken is, because no matter which option among many or few... Uh, and known options, by the way, which makes the issue of knowledge central to this debate, including the knowledge of the determinist, but let's not even go there for a minute. The determinist would still say that whatever the action was, it was determined, period, end of story. There is no choice, so there. And when I hear that, I'm thinking, well, that's not much of an argument, buddy. <laughs> and of course, this theory is extrapolated to mankind's behavior, where the only possible conclusion one can arrive at you know, if you believe in determinism as a epistemological issue, is that human beings have no free will and cannot, therefore, be held responsible for their actions. After all, those actions were all determined, right? The actor had no choice. Case closed. Morality does not exist. Justice does not exist. Right and wrong do not exist. You know, do you buy this argument? Does this make any logical sense to you? Is it an open and shut case to you, or can you spot the flaw in the argument and its conclusion? More when we return after these and these incredible insights and messages. Your money will be deposited in the account within 30 minutes. Please, take all the precautions we discussed. 
course, man. So much for so little. Again, don't mind me saying. They flow from street to street at a particular speed and in a particular direction. Walk the block, wait for the signal, cross at the light. Over and over. So orderly. All day I can watch them and know with a great deal of certainty what they'll do at any given moment. But they're not orderly, are they? Up close. Any individual. Who knows what they're going to do? Any one of them might dash across the street at the wrong time and get hit by a car. When you get up close, we never follow the rules. You give a computer a series of rules, and it will follow them. So those rules are superseded by other rules. Or that computer simply wears down and quits. Computers are obedient to a fault. Do you know what's extremely rare in the world of computers? Finding one that will cross against the light. Thank you, Mr. Walsh. Be careful out there. A physical entity. What? What did you say? It is responding to visual and auditory stimuli. Linguistic communication. Yes, linguistic communication. Are you capable of communicating with me? What are you? My species is known as human. I come from a planet called Earth. Earth? This is what my planet looks like. You and I are very different species. It will take time for us to understand one another. What is this time? It can be argued that a human is ultimately the sum of his experiences. Experiences? What is this? Memories, events from my past, like this one. Past? Things that happened before now. You have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. What comes before now is no different than what is now, or what is to come. It is one's existence. Then for you, there is no linear time. Linear time? What is this? My species lives in one point in time. And once we move beyond that point, it becomes the past. The future, all that is still to come, does not exist yet for us. Does not exist yet? That is the nature of linear existence. And if you examine it more closely, you will see that you do not need to fear me. Your linear nature is inherently destructive. You have no regard for the consequences of your acts. 
That's not true. We're aware that every choice we make has a consequence. But you claim you do not know what it will be. We don't. Then how can you take responsibility for your actions? We use past experience to help guide us. For Jennifer and me, all the experiences in our lives prepared us for the day we met on the beach, helped us recognize that we had a future together. When we married, we accepted all the consequences of that act, whatever they might be, including the consequences of you. Me? My son, Jake. The child with Jennifer. Yes. Linear procreation? Yes. Jake is the continuation of our family. And welcome back to Just Right, where we are talking today about free will and determinism. Is free will real? And you're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where the number to call is 519-661-3600 if you want to reach us. And email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Now, you know, many determinists, who we were talking about just before the break, believe that free will is an illusion because that illusion is in turn created by a false belief in what is you know, philosophers generally call the mind-body split. That is that the mind, which wills, right, can exist separately from the body. Now, there certainly are people who take this imaginary viewpoint, but my argument is not about fantasy. It is about fully recognizing that the mind and body come as a package deal and cannot be separated from one another. And here again, I can hear the determinist. He would counter that since I accept this reality... Therefore, the mind is a physical phenomenon, fully integrated with the body, and therefore whatever that mind thinks is just as determined as the functions of the physical body, since they are one and the same. And by the way, all of this is true on the metaphysical level, which makes it a meaningless point of argument because it is not knowledge. I think this is where I get most frustrated with, with people who argue this point. It's not knowledge. What are you telling me? You're not telling me anything. Okay, once something's happened, it's determined. Wow, what can I do with that? But before it has happened, is it determined? That's what the big real debate is about. But, but just to say, you know, everything's determined, it serves no purpose or possible objective action since under determinism, purposes and objectives cannot exist since they're determined, <laughs> right? Even when they are not realized. It doesn't matter what happened out of any infinite number of possibilities because whatever did happen was determined. Well, what can you do with that? That's not very good information. It's not knowledge. If determinism were knowledge, then it could be acted upon in some way that we could benefit from it or prevent ourselves from being, like, from being hurt by it. Yet determinism is actually anti-knowledge, especially if you apply determinism in the field of knowledge, in the field of, of um, epistemology. If everything is truly deterministic and no free will existed, then our actions taken towards attaining the good life or falling towards the bad life would be unnecessary. I mean, why exercise any choices at all if everything is deter determined, right? If exercising choice is not a factor in outcomes, then why bother making choices? And here's where the determinist starts his long line of contradictions and self-annihilating arguments. The individual acting is still making choices, but that those choices have been determined. And then he'll say, well, not bothering to make a choice is still a choice. And so on and so on, drawn into this gravity well on, the, <laughs> on a black hole of contradiction and purposelessness. 
One cannot reasonably argue that there is no such thing as choice because because of determinism. I mean, this is like this is like having your cake and eating it too. And here's a funny part. Both the determinists who do not believe in free will and those who believe in free will but believe in it on faith are two people in the same boat. They're making the same mistake and are actually, you know, two sides of the same coin. Because really both have a false concept of free will. Like, as I described it earlier, as if the concept of free will itself implies some separation of mind and body, right? Or a separation of, of the human will and what is possible or probable from reality itself. But that is not what free will is or could ever be. Free will is not a concept or existent that exists independent of the entity that possesses that free will or independent of the rules of reality. Come on. You know, Funk and Wagnall says free will is defined as, one, the power of personal self-determination. Two, the doctrine that one's ability to choose between courses of action is not completely determined by circumstances. And three, of one's own free choice, voluntary. Interestingly, Ayn Rand defines free will simply as, quote, your mind's freedom to think or not. To think is an act of choice, she writes, but reason does not work automatically. Thinking is not a mechanical process like the robot we talked about earlier. The connections of logic are not made by instinct. Man is a being of volitional consciousness. A being of volitional consciousness has no automatic course of behavior. He needs a code of values to guide his actions. And here at this point we discover, I guess, what goes around comes around. Here we see Ayn Rand, a supposed atheist, arriving at the same conclusion about the necessity and reality of values. Just as the religious and philosophical types who will always be forced to arrive at the conclusion because those values are real and free will is real. But here's something, you know, I, I don't know that even I picked up on this as clearly as I did when I was doing the research on this. Notice that Rand does not say man is a being of volition. No, she says of volitional consciousness. Bingo. There go all the dominoes. <laughs> this just happened to me recently. Animals are beings of volition. But unlike animals, man has an additional choice. The choice of thinking itself our rational consciousness. And that is a choice, quote-unquote, that no other known entity in our field of current knowledge possesses. We just don't know of any other entity other than human beings that can choose to think in the way that human beings do. To choose to think is in and of itself evidence of an act of free will. And it's an act of free will. You know, it's not just evidence, it is the act. To demonstrate this thoroughly, it would take another show or two, but that's not our focus for today's philosophical excursion. But here's the bottom line as far as Rand is concerned. Because, and I'm quoting here, because man has free will, no human choice and no phenomenon which is a product of human choice is metaphysically necessary, end quote. In other words, human actions and their consequences are not, quote unquote, determined in the sense that no other action could have been chosen at a particular time or instance. But that would mean that the law of causality has been thrown out the window, I can hear some of the hardcore scientific determinists say. If more than one choice is truly possible, then causality cannot exist, right? Because everything is, is determined. Well, if that's really the argument you're going to use, you better think it through. It's, it's a little silly, even on the surface. 
First of all, only an entity capable of making a choice can make one, but the ability to make any particular choice doesn't mean that it will be made. Nor does the fact of choices already made mean that they were determined in the sense that no other choice could have been made. Free will is a property of the human identity, just as heat and light are properties of stars, let's say. It is the point and the axiom of our differential with all other known existing phenomenon animal, vegetable, or mineral. But to suggest or entertain the notion that free will can possibly even be exercised in a vacuum is a little ridiculous. You know, Funk and Wagnall's definition that free will is the doctrine that one's ability, that one's ability to choose between courses of action is not completely determined by circumstances uh, refers to a doctrine that actually, I think, misdefines the concept of free will as a mere matter of choices and actions. A choice or action are the consequence of free will when exercised by a being of free will. So, of course, choices are determined by previous circumstances, since the circumstances and options open to choice are all determined metaphysically. You can't undo a choice made in the past. You know, that's un impossible. But which choice gets made or not made as a matter of predictability in the future is impossible, either theoretically or, or, or practically, because all you have to work with is, is a whole bunch of nonsense and contradictions, all of which are evidence of a flaw in the originating theory. It just tells me, well, something's wrong here. For example, even if a person chooses not to make any choice with regard to a given exercise of his or her free will, the determinist is always obligated to say that even that choice, the choice of not making a choice, was determined and inevitable. In the world of epistemological determinism and inevitability, the very concepts of choice and free will simply cannot exist. And in speaking of either choice or free will as being determined or inevitable is as gross a contradiction as anyone would want to face. One cannot argue both that choices are predetermined and that choices don't exist. If they don't exist, they can't be anything. Not even determined, predetermined, or anything. So what does all this mean? Just this, that nothing is inevitable, not even death and taxes, as I shall demonstrate when we return. Jennifer. Yes, that was her name. She is part of your existence. She is part of my past. She's no longer alive. But she is part of your existence. She was a most important part of my existence. But I lost her some time ago. Lost? What is this? In a linear existence, we can't go back to the past to get something we left behind, so it's lost. It is inconceivable that any species could exist in such a manner. You are deceiving us. No, this is the truth. This day, this, this park, it was almost 15 years ago far in the past. It was a day that was very important to me. A day that shaped every day that followed. That is the essence of a linear existence. Each day affects the next. Aggressive. 
Adversarial. Competition. For fun. It's a game that Jake and I play on the holodeck. It's called baseball. Baseball? What is this? I was afraid you'd ask that. I throw this ball to you. And this other player stands between us with a bat. A stick. And he... And he tries to hit the ball in between these two white lines. Oh. The rules aren't important. What's important is... It's linear. Every time I throw this ball, a hundred different things can happen in a game. He might swing and miss. He might hit it. The point is, you never know. You try to anticipate. Set a strategy for all the possibilities as best you can. But in the end, it comes down to throwing one pitch after another and seeing what happens. With each new consequence, the game begins to take shape. And you have no idea what that shape is until it is completed. That's right. In fact, the game wouldn't be worth playing if we knew what was going to happen. You value your ignorance of what is to come? That may be the most important thing to understand about humans. It is the unknown that defines our existence. We are constantly searching, not just for answers to our questions, but for new questions. We are explorers. We explore our lives, day by day. And we explore the galaxy, trying to expand the boundaries of our knowledge. And that is why I am here. Not to conquer you with weapons or with ideas, but to coexist and learn. Is it ever that ever was out there. That was actually all from the very first episode of Deep Space Nine, believe it or not, which I still consider the best episode of the series, interestingly. You know, inevitability is a concept very much like infinity. Both are really mathematical constructs that don't really exist in reality. There are both potentials that never actualize because in the process of actualizing, inevitability and infinity cease to exist, right? They become certainties and they become determined, in the metaphysical sense of the word only. Inevitability is an epistemological invention that by its nature must imply knowledge of a future certainty of some sort. Hence we say, death is inevitable. But is it really? You know, it's, an in it's really interesting that in the course of my research on today's subject, the only example I could find of inevitability cited in any dictionary was death or some equivalent of it. You know, taxes are not inevitable, by the way, and we cited many examples in history on past broadcasts of this show, including even during periods of the Roman Empire. But I digress only to make the point that death, or ending, or loss, as we heard in the, in the Deep Space Nine clip, seems to be a fundamental property of inevitability. And this suddenly struck me as being extraordinarily significant, and suggested to me some kind of error in our thinking here somewhere about the concept of inevitability. I myself made the error, I caught myself, when in my own thinking about something that could be called inevitable, I effectively cited the death of a star. And there's that death theme again. 
didn't I didn't think to suggest that the star's burning of nuclear fuel fuel was inevitable. <laughs> we don't generally think of life as inevitable, especially given its apparent scarcity in our known universe. I'll return to this later, but I realize now that it it's incorrect to say either. Being able to refer to any of those events as inevitabilities all depends upon what we know now, in the present, about the future, with certainty. A being that has no knowledge of death, for example, or even of the process of dying, is in no position to be able to say that death is inevitable. He wouldn't really know, would he? That's why so many primitive cultures in the past believed in forms of immortality, which they expressed through various social and religious rituals and practices. Maybe if the gods were favorable to you, death might be avoided. Existence would continue eternally. And amazingly, many people still believe this very thing today. Similarly, in the field of physics, there's been an ongoing debate about the nature of the universe. Some say that it is inevitable that the universe will end. And there's that word end again, suggesting a death of some sort. Others say it's inevitable that the universe will continue to expand forever into some kind of infinity, an undefinable reality, because it is kind of an unreality. But at no time do these polarized camps on the issue of inevitability actually argue about causality. You know, they all agree on causality. Whether or not they agree on the concept of inevitability is secondary because even if they do, they'll disagree on what is inevitable because that depends on your knowledge, doesn't it? That depends on your current field of knowledge and on the validity of the concept of inevitability, which I shall now attempt to destroy. As an epistemological concept, the inherent contradiction of any talk of inevitability becomes glaring, especially when it's being used in the attempt to deny free will and choice. Let's actually examine what is inevitable and why, and why it has nothing to do with causality. Well, one thing that's inevitable, <clears throat> we can recall all our dictionaries saying, is death. Okay, so what is it that makes them say that death is inevitable? Is it the fact of causality? Does the mere fact that each event that occurs have an antecedent cause make death, or anything else for that matter, inevitable? This is actually a non sequitur, believe it or not, and it places the cart before the horse, so my answer has to be no. But the inevitability of, of death cart is a tough one to beat. Have you ever known anyone who lived 200 years old? No? So death is inevitable, right? Wrong. Though any particular given death had a cause, it is not the fact of causality that makes death inevitable. Now here's the real kicker and the punchline, the ultimate joke on the people who use inevitability as a proof that free will doesn't exist. When we say that death is inevitable, it is the fact that we have no choice in the matter that makes it so. And nothing else, even if we could prevent death from being inevitable, causality, you know, you know Causality in either case would continue unabated, right? Even if we could prevent death. So causality has nothing to do with that. In fact, if we had a choice with regard to death, or say, to stop a star from dying, saw that done on Star Trek once, then death in either form could no longer be regarded as inevitable, could it? And guess what? Causality would still continue unabated by this lack of so-called inevitability. Now, this isn't mere semantics. This, is, this has profound consequences. Inevitability, the argument, is all about free will, about choice, or rather the perceived or, you know, actual lack of choice. It's not about causality, since it applies to both events determined through choice and to events determined not by choice. 
My Webster's Unabridged Dictionary tells me that the etymology of the word inevitable comes from the word inevitabilis and evitabilis, or sorry, in and evitabilis, avoidable, from evitar, to shun, to avoid. Synonyms include certain, unavoidable, and necessary. While evitable means capable of being avoided. So it's clear that knowledge of some future event, whether avoidable, evitable with choice, or unavoidable, inevitable without choice, is a differentia of the concept's definition. So an, inev- an, an inevitable event, or sorry, an evitable event is no different from an inevitable event that once an action or event has taken place, both are determined and both are subject to the, ca- to the law of causality. So finally, I've concluded that in a philosophical realm, talk of inevitability is really an anti-concept, referring to something that does not and cannot exist, specifically calculated to destroy the concept of free will, which is a valid concept and does correspond to reality. Inevitability in epistemology depends upon the primacy of consciousness, a consciousness with a free will capable of being separate from the body, not of existence, which is reality. Because the idea of inevitability assumes a consciousness that has some kind of given knowledge, knowledge, which is really mystical, of things and events that don't exist because they haven't existed yet. It's the future. It's unreality. So how can you have knowledge of something that doesn't exist yet? It's not knowledge. Now, inevitable, as opposed to what, right? As opposed to things that didn't happen and things that don't exist. And epistemologically, as opposed to free will or choice. So why is it possible and technically valid to be able to say that death is not inevitable? Because once you're dead, it's not an inevitability. It's a certainty. It's been determined. In reality, really, nothing is inherently inevitable. The closest you can get is to a probability very close to 100%, but that can never really be exactly 100%, because 100% would be a certainty. This is very mathematical and would no longer even be a probability, let alone inevitable. So observe that the inevitability, predictability, you know, of an event becomes less and less inevitable as one moves from the general to the specific, or from the distant to the close, as we heard in that clip from the Terminator. This is undeniably so and has been observed in repeated experiments and couldn't be otherwise. You're going from the macro to the micro to the quantum. And this is where time comes in, because if you're given enough time, Everything that can possibly and probably happen will happen because it's inevitable, right? Or so goes the argument. Given an infinite amount of time, I might reasonably... An infinity is another misnomer in our thinking, but I could reasonably argue that the death of our son is inevitable. But as the large becomes small, as an infinite amount of time becomes a smaller amount of time, we're faced with a paradox. Can I say with certainty or any reliable degree of probability that the sun will die in, say, two billion years? I might be able to argue that, but I can no longer say it's inevitable because I've got no precise way of knowing that, nor will I ever have. Similarly, I can say with some degree of certainty that it's inevitable that all of us will be dead and gone in a million years from now. But when I reduce this giant picture down to a specific, can I really argue with guaranteed certainty that any specific one of us will be dead and gone by December 31st, 2011? Remember, my, dis- my discussion is not about dying nor about suggesting that death is ultimately avoidable, which it probably is on some levels, but it's about inevitability as a valid concept by which to dismiss free will and to predict future existence. That's what I'm getting at here. And so my conclusion, I guess, is that nothing is inevitable. Even the fact 
that our show is going to have to wrap up pretty soon for another week. But once we understand that nothing created by human beings is inevitable, and that's the key, then we can only come to the very real conclusion that the future determined will be determined by the free will choices that we make today and now in the present, which is the only existence that exists and the only point in time which you can and are able to exercise your very real and not God-given, though sometimes I'll even use that term, free will. So, with that thought in mind, I hope that you yourself will exercise your free will next week to make the right decision and join us again a week from today as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Hello and welcome to Number One, the maths quiz that's simply everyone. Joining me today are Julie from Northampton and Simon, who is also from Southampton. So, Julie, any funny stories to tell us? Yes. Simon? No. Great. Let's play Number One. And it's Simon to go first. Too slow. Julie? 38. That's number wang. Let's move on to round two. Imaginary numbers. Simon? Twentington. That's number wang. Filth hundred and neep. That's number wang. Shinty six. Oh, bad luck, Simon. I'm afraid shinty six is a real number. As in the popular phrase, I only have shinty six days left to live. <laughs> so, on to round three. Julie?